The time has come to get ready for the 2022 World Cup. And what better way to prepare than by revisiting the World Cup's most amazing goals? I'm Brian Phillips. I'm making a podcast about the history of the Men's World Cup, told through the stories of 22 iconic goals. The show's called 22 Goals. It's out now on the Ringer Podcast Network, and we're having so much fun. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, say it, it's Andy Greenwald. Hey. Hey. Hey, what's up? What's up, buddy? I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I had to get to the center of the athletic universe. Uh, I, so wait, I got, I got myself on a flight <laughs> to Philly. People don't realize this. You actually get called home. You know, it's kind of like the National Reserve, the beacon but for civic pride. Yeah, it's like a tractor beam, uh, and I just can't, I can't avoid it. So they, they, I'm, they I'm put here. The, they put the Tasty Cake logo in the sky, and you're like, I guess I gotta go. Phillies are in the playoffs. Eagles are undefeated. <laughs> it's Cowboys week, and the Sixers season starts next Tuesday. And Phillies and aren't just in the playoffs. Well, they're in the playoffs. They've stayed in the playoffs by advancing by winning. I kind of consider the wild card game the getting into the playoffs part of getting into the playoffs. Do you really think the like a best of three series is is like a real thing? I think, and I should say, because clearly I'm the guy with his eye on the clock, and I like to, you know, I like to really keep this podcast timely. Um, mm. We're going to talk about some TV shows. I've got an interview that's mostly about baseball, if we're being honest, okay. with uh, old pal Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie. A lot of good stuff to discuss, but... This this wild card weekend was insane. I mean, it, it it did make all sports fans that I know turn into Lloyd Bridges in airplane. <laughs> like, it it is so weird to start your playoffs by essentially freebasing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, there was no gateway drug. It was just like this is the most intense, refined form of Walter White meth. Immediately. So, how much did you did you watch some of the Phillies while you watched some of the Phillies wild card series against the Cardinals? I did. Right? Okay. I did. Did you watch any of the Eagles against the Arizona Cardinals? I did. Yeah, I was Just on a murder flight for most of the Eagles Cardinals game, sitting next to a drunk Cardinals fan, which would have been weird because I also had like a very alarming uh, mid air incident with my plane, and I was like, this would be really strange to die next to this guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't believe I'm just impressed you found the Arizona Cardinal fan because he wasn't. Well, it would have been also like if stadium. they had found my like 
I guess this is really morbid, but like, can you imagine if like the only thing left was this guy's Cardinals hat? I I can't. I mean, I think our listeners should know. They know this because they revere you and part of your cool is literally your cool. But in my experience, CR, no stress flying. He's Whip Whitaker. I don't mind it. I like it. Yeah. I think flying is great. He's just fine with it, right? Yeah. I've been in three American cities in four days. What a country. You know? That's amazing. Yeah. But when the plane went on full tilt like a pinball machine, didn't bother you? Got to have a short memory. You, gotta, you just, you just got to be, be, <laughs> be on to the next one. I'm Belichick when it comes to that. I just got to keep... shark. That flight goes into the, into the trash bin and I empty the trash. Make more room on the laptop of life. How did the Cardinal fan take the, 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 the brief interruption with his life plan? He was and I think plan. he was definitely like, I, I, I just went to the bathroom. You know, like he, he was, because he had had, he had overserved himself at O'Hare. Lovely airport, right. O'Hare, yeah. And uh, he had, I think he had had a couple of publican Bloody Marys before he got on our flight. Did you, when the jolt stopped and he was just like sweating Tito's, did you lean over and say like, well, that's I what did it feels like? A like? Real, I did like a real coping mechanism thing where I was just yeah. like, I just am going to listen to Zach and Bill Zach Lowe and Bill Simmons as hard as possible. Yeah. And it was just sort of like, I kind of temple grandined out. I was like, I'm just going to go into my hugging machine. I'm not going to think about the fact that this flight is doomed. And I think he was sort of left. Well, what do I do? You know, I've been trying to make small talk with everybody around me for an hour. You know, I'm wearing this Arizona Cardinals hat flying into Philadelphia. And he was sort of, you know, found his soul kind of abandoned. Did you, did you lean over and whisper, Darius Slay is coming for you next? Did you... (laughs) No, I didn't. But so, but I, I guess here's the thing, and then we can move on from air talk. Sure. With CR and AG. But I, I think I've told this anecdote before, but my worst flight experience recently wasn't really the turbulence. It was right before we took off. The guy was just like, everyone, as you take your seats, just want to let you know that we recently flew this flight from Los Angeles and we're now returning from Albuquerque. And we experienced turbulence that I would describe as extreme. <laughs> So we will not be serving you drinks. For the safety of my crew, I will not allow them to unbuckle themselves during the duration of yeah. the flight. Yeah. If you consider this, if, if you consider yourself weak-stomached, locate your air sickness bag now. Did you locate said, your air sickness bag? Chris, I locate it the second I, I bring my own. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even need to look. But like, I, I my body went into some sort of just... I think we know now. I am not fight or flight. I am just complete shutdown. Yeah. Like I just lost lost feeling and just disappeared into the Headspace app, which was fine. It's just one of those things. They're usually, those situations are over pretty quickly, but you you really do have to make peace with God up there sometimes. It's tough. Well, the worst thing is then it wasn't bumpy. It right. was just a total head trip, right? Right. And you were like, I could have had a, a gin and tonic. <laughs> with, to go with my gin and tonic? Instead, instead I'm sitting here with my... My barf bag the entire just, time. Just, try, just trying to convey like charisma and, and competence to Kim Dickens, who was sitting around in front of me. That's <laughs> like, right. Hey, it's fine, Kim. You can trust me with your career. Hey, um, so yeah. Hey, what what show do you want to talk about? Because I, yeah. I you know, I will skip uh, House of the Dragon this week. You can listen to me on Talk the Thrones if you want to hear my thoughts on Targaryen succession. I made a joke about it in our intro, and I know you did see it, but we can skip talking <laughs> about it this week. I said, uh, there was I a couple it. of things. I I thought it was absolutely. Menchie of you to watch an episode of Sherwood for me. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Did you? So you signed up for BritBox for that, or did you already? Yeah, was that one I, of those like I've somehow already been paying for BritBox for three years? That's AMC Plus. AMC okay. Plus for me 
It's like, I remember one year in Brooklyn, um, I went to the dry cleaner on the corner and they had like pictures up of their like cruise vacation that the very nice family had taken during the holidays. Yeah. And they were like, I was like, oh, you look like you had a nice trip. And they were like, thank you so much for the trip. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And they were like, we really, really thank you. Because I guess my wife and I had really been like over, like really supporting them. Really? They went tarpon fishing in the Keys. <laughs> Which was good. Like you want to know if your money's going to the right place. But um, yeah, so... No, AMC Plus, like, I keep being like, oh, I guess I got to sign up for it. And yeah, because like, every time I'm like, Gangs of London's back, and you're like, oh, sure. okay, and you're like, wait, I already get this. So I, I want to talk to I, you a little uh, bit about it's, your- It's just an instant download. So, okay, so BritBox, we talked about this briefly last week. We're going to talk about the show, sure, when I watched the first episode, I want to okay. definitely discuss it. But I really didn't think I understood what BritBox was, as evidenced by me asking you last week, what is BritBox? So BritBox is an app service. You can get, you can get, get it through the App Store. You can go online. And it's a collaborative project, right, mm -hmm. between the BBC and ITV to just give you uh, the best of, I guess now we have to say, His Majesty's prestige content. And it I is I would say so... that it is, it is the best of. There is also BBC content winds up getting co-proed a lot, right. so it winds up in different right. places. But go on. Okay. But I want to do an exercise with you, Chris, because I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, what I was seeing. Like, it absolutely felt like clickhole to go on Brit, BritBox. Okay. okay, so I'm going to quiz you. I'm going to name six shows that are on the homepage, five shows that are on the homepage of BritBox, and one is made up. Okay, I read a lot of Guardian, so you should know that going into this. If I <laughs> okay. lose this, I'm going to be mad at myself. Here are, oh, oh wait, no, I have, uh, I have six real ones and one fake one. Okay, ready? Scotland's Finest. Okay. You don't need to answer until you're done. The Barking Murders, Murder in Provence, Stonemouth, Trauma, Suspect, Crime. Are you sure you weren't just looking at the, uh, like the verticals of genres? <laughs> yes, although there was a vertical called Docs, and I thought it was medical shows. <laughs> Oi, Doc! <laughs> I'm knowing the I'm British, called, it might just I'm be documentaries biscuit. about different peers. <laughs> yeah. So, I would say Scotland's Finest is not real. It was a trick. They're all real. Okay. There's a show called Crime. It's well. so it's so beautiful. It's like when you when you watch a French cooking show and they're like, you must reduce the stock in such a way with a raft above it that soaks up the impurities, and it's just pure pure meat juice, right? Like that's uh -huh. what BritBox is for people who like crime shows. <laughs> There's just, I don't even think it's real. There's a sh There was something with, uh, uh, what's her name? The great Julie Walters and it's just called Mo. And it's about- Yeah, I'm sure she's like a detective, right? No, she's the pluckiest prime minister in Britain. So it's just like, I love it. This tiny island is just extra. It's a so great thing. The thing is, is that what, one of the reasons why I really like this place, and I don't mean to damn it with faint praise, is that there is no sense of like, we need to scale this product. Yeah. Or it's just like, there is a sustainable audience for Shetland. Yes. And we will make content for them or make that content available for them. So shout out to them. Do you want to talk about, well, I guess we should talk about Sherwood. So I, I yeah. mentioned this last week. This is a show uh, starring David Morrissey and Leslie Manville and Joanna Foggett, and it's a mystery set in Nottingham in the present day, but one that has 
it links back all the way to the 1984 minor strike in England, which uh, I guess you're getting a crash course in now that you're watching this this show. And I thought it was just like excellently well-made television, which isn't like a really great angle right. to take on a show. But I think that it has elements of it that are feel cinematic and moody and very atmospheric. And then it has elements of it that are just like, these dudes know how to make a television show and like just get get this mystery propped up. So what did you think of it? Well, also, I think you you outed yourself last week. You usually don't like to play favorites, but you said this is your favorite minor strike, right? Like of, <laughs> of, of all the major minor strikes that you devote your free time to. Like yeah. this, this 1984 minor strike is the best of the best. In the 70s, they had a yeah. minor strike and all the other industries or many other industries went along with them. Please, I'm sorry if I'm giving too much of a, like a Wikipedia version of this history. I'm sure I'm getting it, some if details If it is, on. call Scotland's Finest. And they had like, basically all the other industries are like, we're with you. And there was, they essentially brought the country to its knees. And they had to give the unions what they wanted, which I'm sure they deserved. And then when they tried it on Maggie in the 80s, she was like, joke's on you. I've been squirreling away coal for a minute. Yeah. So we don't need the unions. And also, like, we're trying to take this whole thing private, hiring a bunch of scabs. Didn't go well. But that scab versus union dynamic pretty much fuels the tension and the conflict in this show. Yes. And I, I mean, I don't know if this is right. I've watched one episode of how many are there? There's six, blessedly. It, it seems like the past isn't past. You know what I mean? It seems like maybe... Maybe some stuff from back then is going to be relevant to now. Do you feel like no, that's an accurate these, assessment? Unlike me with my airplanes where I'm just like, <laughs> on to the next one, these guys are like, no, I'm still thinking about that strike, man. <laughs> I, I I really think you said it best, though, in setting it up in that, like, the most refreshing thing about this for me, and there are a lot, there's a lot to recommend, and I really enjoyed the hour. I want to stick with the series. But I loved how in the pocket it was. Like, this is a show about a place and a crime. Here are these people. We're giving you details enough about all of them. We're not going to hold your hand and here we go. And this doesn't need to be more than that. It does not need to have supernatural elements to make it seem more important than it might be, such as True Detective Season 1. It does not need to be shaped and designed to win an Emmy for one performer over another, which, you know, is the case even in material we adored, like Mare of Easttown, right? Like that mm-hmm. is a Kate Winslet vehicle. It was packaged as such, sold and presented as such, and it worked. I really, really appreciate the intention and scale behind the show. It's rare to see. I mean, I you know what? It's probably not rare to see this at all when you're hanging out in the Brit box. That's right. But when you're watching Mo, where you're just getting those eps of Mo up. <laughs> there was one show. It was just called like Crisis Season Twenty Four. <laughs> like that's so many years of crises. Um, also, the for the headers for the different like comedy. It's just Eddie Izzard. Yeah, it just it it it's felt, a small country, you know. Like it, I, I, we've talked about this, but like when you and I used to just rush to the record stores so we could have the privilege of spending eight dollars on a fifty cent copy of Melody Maker, and it would just I'd be like, I wonder if there are new singles by bands that I love out this week, and instead it would be like Father Ted Christmas Spectacular, which I guess was a show about a rural priest that was really popular in the nineties, and I sort of had to bluff. Anyway, it's really well done. It's really well done. And it's just like, it is such a cool... I mean, when we're watching Andor and we're like, oh my God, every actor is the best actor. That's the other thing about this crazy island, right? It's just like Leslie Manville, who is one of the best working actors, probably, right? You, you may know her from 
um, Mike Lee Phantom movies Thread. or from Phantom Thread. Yeah. She's just in this, she's just on this show and just cooking. You know what I mean? Who is the guy? So do you want to set up a little more of the specifics of the thing to get people? Because I feel like people aren't watching this, so we shouldn't. Yeah, like, I mean, I'll just say it's so basically it's done very well where they both set up the, the credit sequence, I would say, is actually wonderful. Mm-hmm. And you could probably just watch the credit sequence and get like a little back pocket history of of English labor struggles in the 1980s. But essentially, it's like this town that was largely made up of the rival union or the scabs against the NUM, which is the National United Miners, I think. And still in this town, there is little there are little pockets of people who are in the NUM who are in this union. One is a pretty mouthy guy, I believe, named Gary. I can't remember Gary. His name. Yeah. Who do you yeah. know who plays Gary? So it's Alan Armstrong, who's I remember from that movie Kroll, but is just I, <laughs> that guy throughout the years. And he plays this really mouthy retired mine worker named Gary who's married to Leslie Manville's character. And there's like a wedding in town that they're all going to, but they're still kind of cursing at each other under their breath when they go to the pub. There's these near fights about this stuff that happened in the 80s. And a murder occurs. So I won't, without giving too much away from it, because one of the things this show is doing very well is what it's keeping mysterious versus what it's putting out on Front Street. And so obviously I think that the crime itself is not going to be incredibly difficult to figure out, but all the motivations around it and all the ways in which there's a sort of spider's web that it hits every single character in this town is going to be really fascinating. It's interesting to consider it too. And, you know, for people who enjoy watching TV, almost, you know, studying the form, like it's not just that this was so particularly well-made because it definitely is. I don't, think we get shows like this anymore. If we there was a moment when maybe we would, but I do think the wow factor, the prestige factor, the IP factor is just so much more powerful now. And maybe it's also because, you know, in the same way that we don't get many remakes of foreign language shows, we just get the shows that this particular niche like the Britbox Acorn we just make this stuff and we just keep churning it out stuff like feeds the need. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I, whenever there's a show announced on an American prestige service that's like vaguely mystery-ish or crime novel-ish, we're always going to be all over it. But it kind of feels like unless it's attached to something else or someone's attached to it, it's just not going to get made, right? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was thinking about, there's been a couple on Hulu and Peacock recently of more true crime uh, oh, yeah. themed shows or, or mysteries that are based on real events. Obviously, Dahmer was hugely successful and then post-release relatively controversial in the way we talk about or depict serial killers on screen. I thought that discourse was maybe even more interesting than the show itself. But there is something to be said for the... I mean, and, and the Brits are not above schlock for for by any means, but there's something to be said for this kind of classicist way of handling the material mm. and it really does, for lack of a better way of putting it, put like the focus on the humans around a crime rather than the crime or the sensationalization of like the criminal. Yeah, and I think that you make a good point by bringing up the true crime thing because that is clearly, it's just working for people. It is something, you know, it works on podcasts, it works in the publishing world, and particularly like Hulu seems to have just really double down on like this works yeah. for us. This delivers for us. You know, I know we may have referenced this in the past because because we didn't actually cover the show, but Candy, mm-hmm. which was on Hulu uh, a 
couple months ago. And, you know, the most attention, I think we only mentioned it because they were, they were delivering the episodes daily, right? They were, they were, they were playing it out over five nights. And in my hidebound thinking, I was like, oh, they're burning it off. Like there must be something that they're not into with that. It's one of their highest rated shows of the year. It was a smash hit for Hulu. And, yeah. and there's another series coming to HBO based on the same crime. Now you have friend of a family coming to Peacock. Like it is a proven, proven lane to yeah. get people to watch your uh, There, watch there your are service. tons like them. I mean, there's like an entire vertical on Netflix that's essentially Scandi Noir. You know, I mean, that 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 is like, people find comfortable vibes and, and if you can reliably make stuff in that vein, I think that you'll always have an audience. Obviously, I'm watching Sherwood. So like, I'm, I'm a, I'm part of the audience for murders set in the world of labor struggles in the 1980s. You are the poster child for that. That's right. Um, do you remember last week or the week before when you were like, can I be honest with you? I, I don't really care about Elvis and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, sure. Do you not care about labor struggles from the 1980s? Chris, I am your brother in lockstep marching with you for the labor struggles of 40 years ago. It's, it's serial killers. Yeah. I, I, I don't find them interesting. I never have. Did I think you, I you liked Mindhunter, though? I loved Mindhunter, but I thought that that was a different way into it, you know, because that was essentially just about pathology and about people doing their jobs, you know? I really like that. I don't that. really think anyone is particularly normal. So when the premise of a show is they seemed yeah. so normal, and then it turns out that they were eating people. I'm like, mm. I, guess, I guess that's like, I, I don't really find that that like crazy of a conceit. Not that I think all of my neighbors are eating people or anything like that. I mean, it's a terrible crime. But I just think that, like, it, I, the, the sort of veneer of, like, everything seemed so put together for this character. Yeah. But it turns out. What, what is the weirdest thing you think about you that you're willing to admit on this podcast? Like, have you ever done something that to you is normal? And then in a public setting among friends or family, people have been like, I get a lot of shit doing? for dipping French fries in mayonnaise. Does that count? Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. This is the level. Like, we'll save the other stuff for the Patreon, you know, where you really admit it. But like, but that's because you're European, right? Sure, right. Well, I'm I'm out here on BritBox. Can we talk about milk for a second? Actual milk? I feel like I don't know if I've said this on the microphone, but what's this, happening this on this to podcast recently. today? Don't we still have like an hour long Ben Gibbard show? We haven't mentioned the Marvel show that we're talking. Oh yeah, about. we're going to talk about the Marvel show. But I want to ask you something. Like, okay, you know that there's that Reddit. Like, am I the asshole? Like, am I the weirdo here? Okay, so a couple of years ago. I was at uh, Fire Island, uh-huh. you know, a, a, a kitchen you've been in many times. This is not my okay. home, but this is a rental home that a group of our friends would sometimes spend time in, right? Yes. And uh, a couple of our mutual friends were there, and the kids had gone to sleep, so, so the adults were then eating the desserts that the kids had not finished but left on the table. And someone was like, and I'm not a big dessert guy, but someone was like, would you like an Oreo cookie? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm not made of stone. You know, I like an Oreo cookie. And then people were talking. I took the Oreo cookie. The conversation continued. I stood up and I went over to the refrigerator and I poured myself a small juice cup with some milk in it uh-huh. to, to pair with the Oreo cookie because that's a, it's a classic pairing. And you, it was like a record scratch. And everybody was staring at me. Come on. And they you were can't like, trust what, what? East Coast elites like, with this kind of what shit. What are you doing? They were like, yeah. are you drinking milk? I was like, yes. They all drink milk. They just drink oat milk or almond milk or soy milk, right? But that was the thing. I was at a coffee shop here the other well, day. Well, maybe not as a in front beverage. of me. Right. So, so, so I am the weirdo. It was just a pair of Well, I guess cookie. that's more of like a creamer thing. So you, so you, well, you were at a coffee shop the other day. 
It was a dairy sommelier. And the people in front of me were like ordering their expensive drinks, as was I was intended to do as well. And the woman was like, what, what uh, dairy would you like in it? And they were like, oh, does anyone drink anything else? And they all had like a big laugh. And I was like, ma'am, I, I would like a cortado, please, with the finest squeezed cow's juice. <laughs> because I am the savage that your previous customers yeah. are afraid of. Well, you've got very strong bones. And she no was like, oh, I, away from me. but she was talking the way people talk about psychedelics. She was like, oh, don't, I didn't mean to offend you. I'll drink cow's milk sometimes. Uh, it, it suits a small serving. She didn't call it cow's milk, did she? Yes. Yeah, what are we doing? Coffee shop. Yeah. Um, it was Andy, in your neighborhood. I'm sticking to mine. Okay. Over the weekend, <laughs> before we get to your Ben Gibbard interview, I wanted to talk a little bit about Werewolf by Night. I did too. A uh, Marvel special presentation, I think they're describing it as. Yes, Directed they did. by famed TV and movie composer Michael Giacchino, right? Giacchino, yeah. Giacchino, thank you. Based on a character I didn't know existed, but is a essentially werewolf man hybrid who... But only by night. Only by night, which is good. I mean, like the daytime werewolf is an undiscovered, like a really market inefficiency if you ask me but it it's uh, a little wordy like no one thought you were working normal <laughs> nine to five hours yeah. werewolf but uh Gael garcia barnal laura donnelly star in this it's basically an homage to uh classic horror from the 40s and 50s your bread of frankenstein your black and white sort of very theatrical very over-the-top horror this is a really neat cool little idea like i don't know that i will ever watch it again i don't know that that isn't that's not supposed to be damning praise i thought it was like a very enjoyable way to spend 45 minutes got me in 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 that spooky season hashtag i'm down i'm down for like special presentations i saw already that they're like there are many adventures that you know jack russell could have and also we could look into all the histories all, all the monsters who are painted on the walls in this place do you want to tell me a little bit of, or tell our listeners a little bit about what this is about? Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing that's sometimes hard to remember is that these comic book companies that became famous and known for publishing the superheroes that dominate our lives today existed before the superhero boom in the 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. Marvel was called Timely Comics. DC went through other names as well. But they were just publishing what people read. And sometimes they were Western comics, and sometimes they were detective stories. For a long time, they were monster stories, monster comics. And there's a tradition of some of these characters, not just, you know, uh, public domain characters like Dracula, but specific monsters like the incredibly named Man-Thing, who is in this series. Yeah. Uh, he's Ted. That's Ted. Um, that in some cases, I think Man-Thing was created later, but predate you know, Iron Man and Captain America. And over the last decade or so, it's been fun to watch more adventurous comic creators and writers try to fold in that completely uh, anachronistic branch of Marvel history, for example, into the main history and say that these these are all part of the same shared universe, but also more broadly that comic books aren't just superheroes and you can tell different kinds of stories with them. And I really loved the special for its understanding of that concept and its fidelity to the fun spirit of that concept. And it it didn't try to do too much. Yeah. You know what I mean? In a way that, that felt really 
really noteworthy. I mean, I know that everything about this is bracketed and parenthetical. It's like, hey, this we're just having some fun here. It's Halloween. It's a special presentation. We're not saying that it's connected to the next six series or whatever, despite your correct observation that it could be. I hope they realize that's a feature, not a bug, right? That like the low-key nature of all this, including the sort of relatively muted promotion for it, is a great thing. Yeah, it's and a, there's... It, 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 this isn't as good as Andor, but its existence makes me have a few of the same good vibes for the larger MCU project in the same way that Andor does for Star Wars. The only thing wrong with this is that what's wrong with me, which is that my starting line for horror is like to yeah. feel like I've had defib paddles put on me. <laughs> so anything that's like not soft by any means, but tender or in the poltergeist zone of like, ah, spooky. Yeah, 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 That's like not necessarily my particular lane. But that being said, like I really enjoyed myself. It just wasn't like, yeah, it, it wasn't like exactly what I go to. I But I don't really watch a lot of monster movies or creature features. It's never well, I mean, really it, been my bag. It fell kind of in between a bunch of things in a way that I think was charming, but might cause problems going forward in the sense that it is a little bit tongue in cheek and winky clever in the way that Marvel things often are. Um, Gael Garcia Bernal is awesome as someone who pretends to be a monster hunter, but is in fact a monster himself. But his performance is a little bit tongue in cheek, mm -hmm. as is a lot of the, the the accoutrement, if you will, of this special. Um, and yet, sometimes the violence is like, oh, oh, they, she cut his arm off with an axe. Like, are we doing that? Like, yeah. it, it's it's no more gnarly than like Sam Raimi when Sam Raimi's doing his own stuff. But the line of what we're doing here in the Marvel Universe on Disney is always a little bit blurry. And so that was curious. Um, I read Michael Giacchino say that like he thought it was going to be TVMA for sure. But because it was stylized in black and white and you couldn't see the blood spatter, they got away with it being like TV 14 or something. With dudes getting their arms chopped off and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Or like getting a silver bolt through the bottom of their chin and, well, Laura Donnelly holds them while they die. I mean, you know, that was intense. Yeah. But there was something that was... It was the style. I mean, I think Giacchino gets a lot of credit here. It's black and white. There's some really nice shots. Did you know he really was a nice director? Or, or? Absolutely did not. Absolutely did not. Um, I don't think he has many other credits. Um, no, he had done like a short on one of the Star Trek productions. Like when, they, you know, because before there were streaming services, right. sometimes people would do like for the DVD or whatever. Here's like a cool spinoff short of this. Or, you know, Marvel used to do shorts as well. Mm -hmm. Like they used to do... Yeah. Uh, digital shorts. So, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, he seemed incredibly accomplished. Yeah, I, it, he's actually someone I'd love to speak to, um, not just because of his great and long career scoring things, particularly with J.J. Abrams over the last few years and, and, and for Pixar recently as well. But, like, the, I'm always curious when people who work in film move between jobs and what they bring from one job to the other. You know, um, people who uh, who started as editors and, you know, or because that's what that was paying work, and then they get they find success as directors. You know what what they've learned from doing one to the other. Actors is another one, but scoring is a rare transition. And I yeah. wonder what he would say about just the idea of like synchronizing different you know elements and pulling threads together to make things melodious. It's kind of interesting to consider. Yeah, because um, like John Carpenter, you, there's a couple of examples of John people Carpenter who've done music. done directing and scoring. But I didn't would never say that John Carpenter was a composer first and a director later in life, obviously. The great forgotten, at least by too many people, indie filmmaker Hal Hartley would make oh, yeah. the music for his own movies under the name Ned Rifle, which is right. a pretty cool name. 
Speaking of, any listeners know when Hal Hartley stuff's coming to streaming? You just holler at your boys. So there's cool. no, Hal Hartley is not on Criterion at all? I thought Simple Men was, but is, am I wrong? Sometimes Simple Men shows up, sometimes um, Henry Fool shows up, but like Unbelievable Truth and Trust, I, I don't know, I never know how to find them. Um, anyway, Werewolf by Night, really good entertainment. Recommended really by good the Watch Podcast. You know who else is really good? Is Laura Donnelly, who I'd yeah. seen only briefly in The Nevers, that sort of, which sort of ill-fated uh, Joss Whedon show. When did you watch The Nevers? I watched the pilot. I feel like I'm on top of all this with you. Really? Yeah, you, I, you snuck you know, a pilot in there and you didn't you didn't tell me about it. Was I away? You know, post post Albuquerque, I feel like we kind of if there's stuff that we are gentlemen passes on, we don't really talk about it mm. that often. I think when it's too big to fail, like House of the Dragons, sometimes we gotta we gotta mix it up. But generally, you know, we like to spread positivity on the podcast. You gotta mix it, do up. it for me. My fucking guy, Amon, is ascendant. <laughs> That's your dude. <laughs> that dude did, had a growth spurt. I love that for him. So he's like, was he playing in Europe? And you know then who like, does when not he came distinguish the between cow milk, Eamon Targaryen? Yeah. He's just like, I'll take the milk. Eamon is the one with the eye patch? Yeah. I, you and know, the double entendres. The, I just want to talk about people's like skincare regime and aging. Because let's just like, what does Damon do right? To get the good genes. I think it's more what Viserys did wrong. Do you, I had an absolute... I nearly had a heart attack yesterday when Mallory or Joanna were for, informed me. Do you know how, how old Viserys is supposed to be in the show? How old? 52. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that how old Bill is? I said the same thing to on know? the podcast. <laughs> I said the same thing. I was like, Bill's 52. Oh my God. Oh my God, that's so that, amazing. that disease really got after it with him, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, here's my only note. We're going to, I have one more thing to say about Werewolf by Night, but I'll, we'll hide inside of this, the Easter egg of my one, my one note for House of the Dragon, which is, I want Patty Considine to be on the show for 10 seasons. Mm -hmm. So you didn't, you didn't watch scenes from next week then? Nope. <laughs> it's okay. my favorite, it's my favorite comedic performance of the last 10 years. Yeah. And I think it's incredible. And I, and I just, I love it. I love that even in his decrepit, literally leprous state, he found time to pull out the eyes wide shut mask. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was just like, get me a nice dinner and get me Fidelio. Get me Fidelio. I, th I, was, I was thinking more Ed Norton from Kingdom of Heaven, but yeah. So last Werewolf by Night thing. Maybe this is just, this is just, you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy and the football. But like, I came out of this really nicely paced, self-contained, almost entirely black and white until the end uh, hour, being like, yeah, I would do more Bloodstone. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like Laura Donnelly back. I like this. I like her and this part. This is fun. I really liked Gael and the man thing, talking about getting sushi. Like, it, they did a really nice job with it that, to make me interested in this world in I a way that felt I, fun. I, I low don't stakes. disagree I hope that the lessons learned are more, let's do more special presentations. Yeah. This is a good That's right. length for a one-off. And if the one-off is like, whoa, we got something here, by all means, do what you got to do with it. But I thought that this was, knowing that this was just like a one-time thing to check out on, on the East Coast in the fall, black and white, it's night, I fired that up. I just got so excited by it. Yeah. It, it's really nice to not be like, and now I have eight more episodes or we have to you, figure out whether or not Reed Richards is showing up. And that's like you and me, that's our you're, issue with you're it. right. 
But there's, like you said, a treasure trove of characters. Like they're often bandying around, oh, there's yes. 1800 Marvel characters and we've only begun to scratch the surface. And I think one of the things that makes us grizzled old milk drinkers that we are a little bit <laughs> milk of the poppy mind you yeah a little bit like you know fatigued with all of this is the idea that each one of those 1800 characters are going to get their own eight episode limited series that then has to intertwine with right. 15 other limited series that are being shot simultaneously and nobody knows anything and nobody knows what to, how to cut this is a new way for them to do this stuff after the experience of that post-pandemic burst of content that came out on disney plus with wandavision and hawkeye mm -hmm. and Falcon, you know, like all that stuff. That was one quote unquote phase. And I hope that they do more shit like this. I hope that they're like, hey, why don't we make like a 55 minute movie that we can shoot on the soundstage in Atlanta? That seems really cool. Like, fuck it, man. Put put Renner back in the in the Hawkeye outfit, but like have him doing one case in 50 minutes. I don't know. What's the what's the bad part? Does everything need to be interconnected and part of a like a larger phase of storytelling? I mean, from your lips to the ears Kevin's of Kevin ears. Feige's ninth yeah. assistant, who can then whisper down the line to him that I, hey, I Kevin, mean, I, it, that would, podcast would that talks about BritBox, they think we should stop doing the enormously successful franchise storytelling. Like I'm not listening to those milk drinkers. I, I think that it would be pretty cool, though. I think you're right. If like, okay, so this is their Halloween franchise. So next year, revisit it with another hour. And let's just move on as gentlemen yeah. and friends. Like, that's totally fine. And I agree with you. I think, I do think the economics, which many, many companies at least, you know, are behaving like they're immune to, factor in here. Because to take a character, for example, and I don't know what they're going to do with her, and I hope they do right by her, but this character of Ironheart that mm -hmm. is, you know, an Iron Man, from the Iron Man coaching tree, let's say. Sure. It's basically the Iron Man armor falls to a teenage super genius who's an African-American kid in Chicago. And I think it's already been announced there's going to be a Disney Plus series. She's going to be in, or she, she appears, or the too. armor is in Black Panther and Wakanda no, forever. No, she's in it. There's a shot of her in it. It's yeah. confirmed? Okay. So. I can confirm that, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Like, what's it, like, Joe Blow News, whatever the site is, is your other job? <laughs> Confirmed. Chris, I want you to just sort of rebrand yourself as someone who tweets reactions despite the embargoes when Marvel movies premiere. Just be one of those dudes who's just like, not supposed to say this, but Kevin has done it yeah. again. Literally crying in my milk duds. RN. Yeah, yeah. that's you. Um, but like, it would be better, I think, for everyone for, an, for there to be an Ironheart special presentation. Introduce the character with a really sharp 50 minutes. And by the way... The people who wrote Werewolf by Night, Heather Quinn and Peter Cameron, are in-house people. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they did WandaVision, they worked on Hawkeye, right? Yeah. They worked on Hawkeye. And so that's the thing is you can also like if you're looking, let's just say, I know that this is not how these things work, but let's just say they were. If you were the programmer of Disney Plus, yeah. you could kind of look and be like, ooh, a little, little soft spot in the schedule right here. Or like, hey, it's a it's this season. Why don't we try and do this? You know? What what's your Easter content, Disney Plus? You know? Yeah, what Marvel special presentation. Could we, could we get some resurrection content going on? <laughs> well, that's all comic books. But but <laughs> just to just to finish the thought that like the economics of these shows is so outrageous now. I mean, Tony Gilroy said it to us that like oh now they're willing to spend two hundred million dollars yeah. to make a TV show. Um, the expectation, as we've been having these CGI conversations, even on shows we're not watching, like She Hulk, you can't cheap out on it, right? And so. 
you couldn't make the economics work to build the sets and get the CG and everything going for Ironheart if you weren't going to amortize it over right. 16 but episodes you over do three years. The Breakfast Club yeah. with Riri Williams is just like a kid in high school. Is that Are you atoning for your William Rhodes thing by knowing the name of Ironheart's actress? alter ego? No, isn't that the actress? No, that's the character. Oh, so oh, you, just, it- you didn't know. Okay, good. <laughs> I was worried. <laughs> By the way, we got, I don't want to out friends of the pod, but our, our pal Damon Lindelof was really mad at us for when we talked to Evan moss Backrack last week and then we were like embarrassed that we knew Greedo and he didn't. He was like, it's kind of hard. Holding, not, I mean, he's a pretty cool guy. It's hard to like be like, yeah, like, like I'm not going to correct him if he doesn't. I couldn't also tell if that, I mean, with all due respect to him, was is that true? I guess so. But if the man's <laughs> holding Greedo's blaster, he could say the name Greedo. You know but what I mean? But it's also hard to imagine Tony Gilroy being like, let's stop everything on Andor and make sure we chart the, the sort of path of this blaster oh, to Greedo. Tony Gilroy does not know whose blaster it was. <laughs> he's listening to our podcast being like, that guy drank what? Yeah. So do you think it's like a prop guy came up to Evan Moss backrack and was like, yeah, this is Greedo's blaster. Yes, use it well. Yeah. And he's like, really? I'm going to pretend not to know that guy's name. Yeah. Uh, Andy, uh, do you want to set up your Ben Gibbard interview at all? Yeah, just that it's always fun to talk to, to Ben. We've known each other for a long time. We recorded this last week. And so some context, Death Cab for Cutie's 10th album, Asphalt Meadows, is out now. They are, the band is on tour now. The record is really good. I mean, Ben says he thinks it's their best record in a decade, and I'm not going to argue with Ben. It was worth noting that we were we recorded last week a day or two before the playoffs began, but when Ben's team, the Seattle Mariners, had finally come off the schneid, as they say, and made the playoffs for the first time in like 21 years. So it's that's really time. all yeah. he cared about and wanted to talk about. Um, since then, he has completely lost his mind because the Mariners won their first series just like... Right. So like for our, the sake of Ben Gibbard and for the Philadelphia Phillies, we will call the wild card round the, the playoffs. A significant playoffs. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not saying we... You know, wild card flags don't fly forever. I'm not saying like that was really significant, but it was... I got the feeling was, that almost everybody who was celebrating their wild card victories were like, and now the real work begins. You know, they yeah. weren't like, like I'm going right. to drown in champagne you, tonight. I think they had a similar party on the set of House of the Dragon after the eighth <laughs> fucking episode. <laughs> Guess what? We could start the show now. Right? You're such a little... Uh, you're right. You know I'm right. Um, anyway, yeah, a lot of baseball talk. I liked um, last night's episode. You want to debate this for the 15th time. I enjoyed myself last night. Eamon and Damon are good TV. And really sound nice when you say them together. Yeah. Can you name all the children played by different actors in three episodes? Well, I, they they all have been given much easier to understand, like remember, like Luke, Joff, right? Then there's another uh-huh. kid. Rhaenyra has three kids by quote unquote Lenor. Yeah, I think we're two. I can't remember. And then she has, oh, she's doing some Damon kids now, so she's got two of those: Viserys yeah. and Aegon. And then Allison has three sons, two sons and a daughter. That's great. Yeah. One is one is Riri, right? One <laughs> yeah. is Lieutenant Colonel William Rhodes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the other is the werewolf by night. Okay. Yeah, it all starts to make sense now. All yeah. right, we'll get into this interview with Ben. We talk about music, careers, baseball. It's a good chat. And um, Deepest apologies to Kai McMullen for producing today. 
<laughs> just respect. I don't know. Apo- apologies. Yeah, sometimes I think we give her really like a lot to work with. And then today, I think we were kind of all over the shop. But I enjoyed it. I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for Kaya here. She could unmute herself at any moment. But I do think that of all the podcasts she works on, she does great work on all of them. Mm. There are very few like just detours into lactose issues. You know, like just like dairy choices. Right? Kaya, would, would, does Tea Time ever venture into what kind of dairy do you no, they, like? I they guess take their tea with lemon. Hottest Take does a lot of dairy content. Oh, yeah, really. Also, Kai is not listening. Kai, Kai is not listening. <laughs> I'm I'm team milk. Oh, yes, see? I'm team two percent. Yeah, you know, I just get offended when I'm like, I'll have my milk added coffee drink with milk, please. And they're like, what kind of milk? I'm like, no, nope. There's one kind of milk. My problem is, is that coffee shops only ever offer whole milk. Well, and right. I don't necessarily want a whole milk latte. That's a lot of milk. Well, it's the same amount of milk. You just don't want all that milk fat content. You you prefer a yeah. lighter milk. Yeah. They're yeah. not adding. More. Yeah. Let's let's put this part right now at the top of the podcast. Just coming oh. in cold with milk talk. <laughs> cold milk the froth, talk. if you will, on the uh, uh, well poured flat white. We did it. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday with more watch content. I would venture a guest to say that we'll be talking about Andor uh, and probably Atlanta and some other stuff. Kaya produced us today. Andy is my co-host and the Ben Gibbard interviewer. And we'll talk to you on Thursday. That sounds good to me. Let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, Then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Okay, I'm so excited now to be joined by an old friend, someone of whom I'm a big fan, and someone who really is only going to want to talk about baseball today, Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. Ben, welcome back to the show. Congratulations a little bit on your 10th album, Asphalt Meadows, but really congratulations on returning to the MLB playoffs. Thank you. Yeah, I believe we released uh, eight records between when (laughs) the last time the Mariners were in the playoffs and today. So yeah, it's... it's, uh, Feels like we won the World Series and we're only probably going to be the third wild card. So whatever, man. It's all gravy from this point on. That's beautiful. So really, it's just a blink of an eye, but also the majority of your career. So <laughs> best to think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's... it's. Uh, I don't think that people outside of Seattle really have an understanding of what a cathartic moment Friday afternoon was, or night, I should say. Just because you know, you kind of, you just get used to not being in the playoffs every year. And then to finally just realize that we're going to play some meaningful baseball uh, in October. It feels like it's a lot, a lot more significant than it should be. But I think that's just because of the 21 years with no playoffs. Yeah. I mean, as someone who has had 11 years, you know, with no playoffs until, until last night, I'm, I'm trying to connect with you, you know, on a, on an sure. empathetic level, but sure. I, I guess, I guess the flags of 2008 fly forever, you know, so it, it's hard to, it's hard to really go into that mind space. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, what's it like going to a World Series? I wouldn't know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I although, you, I, I don't although, know. 
I think you do know about me that I actually once attended a World Series game, and it was the game the Phillies lost like 17-15 to the Blue Jays, which was just like <laughs> the most dispiriting and most Philadelphia loss maybe ever. So I do have that in my bloodstream, but... I, yeah. I do recall I do recall you telling me that during the 2008 World Series that you you hid behind a potted plant because you were too anxious in your own home if if, if I'm recalling this correctly and I I have <laughs> Thank you for remembering that, this yeah yeah I have referenced that a number of times and said look if Andy was that anxious <laughs> I don't know I don't know how I'm going to react I'm going to have to if the Mariners were to make the World Series I'd have to, I would have to move out of my home Well here's the thing like I am a devoted sports fan, but I am a terrible sports fan and I have not gotten any better over the years. And so what you're describing is accurate. I'm both honored and appalled that you remembered, but during Mm -hmm. it, it started, you know, earlier in the playoffs, but by the world series, any crucial moment, which was really all of them, uh, especially like during Phillies at bats, I would get up from the couch and walk behind a potted plant and also mute the television because if I could hear it, it was too real. But with the silence and the plant, like it was enough distance for me to emotionally, it wasn't healthy. It's not healthy. I don't know if I'm ready for that again. Well, I think that uh, I am also a fatalist sports fan in the sense that I am always kind of preparing for the worst outcome and while hoping for the best. So the Mariners went on a three and seven road trip against three of the worst teams in baseball not a week ago. Yeah. And I was convinced at that point that they were going to blow it because it just seemed like a very Mariners thing to do. And, you know, if, if past behavior is an indication of future behavior, you know, it would be best in my mind to take the fatalist position than to be optimistic. And I would get into it with people uh, on Mariners Reddit or whatever. And they would be like, you just got to believe, man. I don't know why you can't believe. It's like, I can't believe because we've made five playoff appearances in the last 45 years. That's what why. In, yeah, what in your history has taught you it's okay to yeah. believe or to trust or love again? I mean, this is that's that's insanity. We were in the same situation where a few days ago, the headline by the Phillies beat writer on The Atlantic, uh, The Athletic, we're not highbrow enough to be covered. This team is not highbrow <laughs> enough. This, this team of like giant jacked meatballs um, was like, the Phillies are authoring their worst collapse since 1964. Can anything be done to stop it? That was the headline. So that's where we approach things. We should talk about your new record, but I do feel like since we're talking about baseball, since it is the season, I don't think we've ever talked about in a public forum our place in baseball history, have we? That, 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 I don't believe we have, but I think, that, I think that now is the time to do it. I do too. I think this is also perfect for as one thing that connects us in our love of marginal, not very successful teams is that we hate successful teams, right? I mean, we, yeah, we support fans and people who like baseball, but but Yankee fans, we don't have a lot of empathy for uh, or time for. And yet, I don't know if it's in Cooperstown, it's certainly on YouTube. If you watch the footage of A-Rod's 600th homer, a historic, beautiful moment at the stadium, you will see two deeply unimpressed pasty figures just behind home plate. I recently revisited this and we are very visible. We were We went to that game together 12 years ago. And we were the only people in that area who did not stand up. <laughs> didn't care. When A-Rod, uh, we did not care. We were, we were aggressively uh, <laughs> anti the moment. And uh, if I recall correctly, I through the Lonely Island guys, we yes. were able to secure those seats because those seats are Lauren Michaels' seats. And I yes. brazenly kind of reached out to Akiva or, or Yorma. I was like, hey, is there any way we could get those seats behind home plate? 
And for whatever reason, we got them. And then we found ourselves back there, you know, surrounded by Yankees fans, you know, watching this moment that uh, no one seems to want to replay for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why, <laughs> but it does. It does. If I could interview you for a second, I'm curious what Please, your yeah. thoughts are mm. on this whole race to 62 uh, that Aaron Judge is currently on. And I'm just curious what your, your thoughts are on it, because I have my own as well. And I'm sure we're on the same page here. My main thought is, why haven't we been invited back to the stadium? We are their good luck talismans for major home run events. Um, so that's my first thought, is to make it entirely about me and by extension you. Sure. My second thought is, I mean, I don't like it when Yankees succeed. So I'm struggling with that. So do you mean like the, yeah. the sort of the media, like the let's cut live to every Aaron Judge strikeout or intentional walk uh, hoopla or the game's focus on making this important so that they can then erase Barry Bonds's number in a way? Uh, that was what I was leading you to would be yes. the second point. Um, I- I'm finding it very obnoxious that this moment, albeit historic in its own way. And, you know, of course, Aaron Judge is an amazing player who's having yeah. an unbelievable offensive year. Uh, some may argue one of the top 10 offensive years in baseball history. Uh, and I, what I'm having a hard time with is, is people not being able to hold that and the other truth that Barry Bonds hit more home runs yes, and be able to accept that there was an era of this game in which a lot of people were using performance enhancing drugs, both on the pitching side and the hitting side. And, um, and not to mention the decades in which people were inhaling uh, amphetamines uh, every day in the dugout. And I, I'm, I, I'm finding it a little bit obnoxious. I think it's mostly because it is a Yankee. I think that this was happening yeah. to somebody on the Diamondbacks. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be hearing about it to such the extent. And of course, there's the, oh, it was Roger Maris hitting 61, and now it's another Yankee, and it's Judge, and what a wonderful lineage of Yankee greatness. Da, 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 da. And that would be correct. But um, I'm just one of those guys who I just take the steroid era for what it was. And I believe, and those are the records now. Those are the numbers. And this, I, I, I'm finding it obnoxious that we're trying to kind of, we're seeing articles that are saying things like, is, will judge be the new home run King now? It's like, no, he won't. Barry Bonds is the home run King. You may not like it, but that's what, that is the reality of the situation. Yeah. It's a, it's a bummer. I mean, I don't, my relationship with it in general is, is I, I, Baseball is such a weird relationship to its history, right? Where it's just like picking and choosing what matters and celebrating only, cherry picking what it wants to celebrate and pretending whole eras or whole personalities or people didn't happen. And yet at the same time, they're like, well, how can we make this game faster and worse all the time, you know? (laughs) So like, well, I'm excited the Phillies are back in the playoffs. I'm the old guy. I'm like, how many wild cards are there? And why aren't the pitchers batting? Like, there's something about it that just seems every step of the way, whether it's the, this sort of like, glossy nostalgia thing that they're trying to put on us with judge and the rule changes. I, I don't feel like it's speaking to me. The, the communication is off. If that makes sense. I, I'm putting my arms around two different points, but yeah, I, if we, I'm going to try to put my arms around the point you just made, which is that I, or just to counter your point, I think is the one you're trying to make is that you don't like the new rules. That are I don't like the new here. rules. Okay. No, I, I love don't like, the new rules. Well, I don't like the new rules because as a, we were talking about as a Phillies fan from 2008, I just think about Ryan Howard, whose career was basically ended by people being like, there are four outfielders now, and now you won't mm-hmm. be allowed to do that anymore. And he would have had a better, I mean, he had a great career, but he would have had a longer career. 
Wait, I'm, I'm confused. So, so I am I am for banning the shift. Yes, for banning the shift. And, okay, and I am for a pitch clock. You're you're pro pitch clock. I'm pro pitch clock, and I'm also whoa, and I'm also well, I'm American League guy, but yeah, you're you pro can't DH. tell me with a, you can't tell me with a straight face that this last year of DH baseball in Philadelphia has been less of an experience in watching some guy flail at a, it's a, a pitcher flail at a, at a at a breaking ball. My team is entirely DHs. I have nine <laughs> that DHs. True. That is true. <laughs> so I don't know what to feel about them at all. I like seeing people flail. That's, you know, it's, it's what I like in music too sometimes. You know, I like people just reaching for things they can't quite hit, right? Am I, I'm trying to find a segue now. Okay, I, I see. We're, we're segueing away. Okay, I'm, I'll roll with you on this one. We're, we'll, we'll, let's, let's, let's move away from baseball as much as we could talk about it for the next two hours. I, we could. This is dangerous because this is, <laughs> I'm, my only ask is like, I want to try to find some music questions that will get the same uh, motivated tenor in your voice, you know, because I okay, feel like. sounds good. Because I know that this is a topic. You're more interested in this today. But I do have to ask about the <laughs> I understand. Record. That's why we're here. Which, That's why we're here. Which is, which is really good, by the way. And um, you're on tour right now. Where are we even speaking to you from? Somewhere on tour. Well, back to baseball. Uh, we are playing at a venue across the street from Truist Park, uh, which is where the Atlanta Braves play. What yeah. I thought, but uh, we are not actually in Atlanta. Uh, oh. We are 20 miles out in the suburbs. Uh, I, I suppose oh, right. the... Uh, people who own the Braves, uh, you know, they wanted to make a more uh, suburban friendly, if we can call it, uh, Great. environment for their baseball team with the racist uh, uh, hand, ch- hand uh, chopping uh-huh. the hand gestures. They were like, you know what, we need to get this to a safer area of town. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it is. A, I walked around today and it is like, it is truly one of the uh, most prefab, like, towns yeah. i think i've ever been in it's like this whole complex is like it, it, it it's like a, it's it's like epcot center or something it's it's it, it has no soul whatsoever uh certainly doesn't feel like atlanta and oh also i hate the braves so uh let's get that out there <laughs> but the fans tonight will be great i'm sure i'm sure they will i'm not going to say any of this on stage of course i've learned my lesson talking about uh sports teams from the stage it's something i shouldn't do yeah unless you're in seattle perhaps um yeah of so- course, yeah Okay, so I want to run the clock back a little bit. To you're sure. still two years away from the Mariners making the playoffs, so I just want you to ground yeah. yourself in that emotional reality. Um, the moment the pandemic hit, great time for all of us. I'm really curious, just knowing you for a long time and and thinking about your creative process, and also when we've had these conversations about like mm-hmm. each new record, what got you into it, what you were thinking about, what was inspiring you. You know, one thing over the last decade plus certainly was about how you have found some balance in your life, whether it was through running um, or through other avenues, aspects of your life had settled down, had gotten normal, if you will. You're in your normal life when the entire world goes totally fucking abnormal. <laughs> and I'm wondering, as not just as the person that I've known for a long time, but also as the artist, someone who was, you know, whether you were in the early stages of writing down songs or what have you, how did that massive shift affect you creatively? I think that we collectively, but certainly in Seattle, I don't think that we realized how close to chaos we were living in America. And I think that the systems that have always held to a certain extent and that we have taken for granted and assumed they, they would always work, they would always function, 
began to stop functioning properly. And for me, I guess a, a large, a large part of my anxiety and kind of, I guess by extension, creative motivation was kind of leaning into that feeling of anxiety and the realization that so, so much of, of my city, of our mm. country, of the world for that matter, that we assumed just would continue functioning as it always had, uh, was on the, on the border of, uh, of just descending into complete chaos. And, you know, so, you know, when there is like, you know, a four block anarchistic zone descending into chaos and people literally dying or being killed, you know, less than a half mile from my house, it's, it's very difficult to kind of just not be affected by that and to not, you know, spend a lot of the day, you know, dreading what the next day will bring as far as a further descent into chaos. I mean, it's like, whether it's like people just abandon, you know, it seemed like during the pandemic, we had people just like literally or figuratively just abandoning their posts. So, you know, my life at home in my house was fairly similar to my life before the pandemic. My wife and I don't have children. We're both artists. We both work at home. But, you know, obviously, once you walk out the front door, you are face to face with the scary possibility of life never returning to something that we we deemed normal before. So, so that was that was a, a very motivating and kind of my writing during the time. It's interesting to think about um, your observations of your home and your neighborhood from lead off single to lead off single to going from gold rush in the observation of how Seattle has changed to Roman candles and seeing you know a a, a very very different vision of both the city and the world. I mean, that, that that's, it, it's hard to think of a more striking contrast than just to go between those two songs, introducing the two different albums from two different, genuinely two different eras of American existence. Sure. I mean, you know, when we were, when I was writing, thank you for today. I mean, one of the things I was ruminating a lot on was the changing landscape of the city that I lived in. And, and uh, not so much that, that I wanted to be like the good old days, but just as, corporate and internet and, you know, Amazon influence started to kind of eat away at Seattle, just how the flavors of the city began to change rather quickly. And, you know, where once was a, a, an old dive bar you drank at is now, and, you know, an Amazon go or whatever. And, and, and that that was a fairly, uh, at the time, a fairly disturbing transition. And uh, at the time seeing this slow death of the city that I knew was very concerning to me. But obviously when the pandemic hit, or what should be obvious the pandemic hit, those concerns seem ridiculous in comparison to the seemingly daily threat of the breakdown of society. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, they're very stark. There are very stark differences between those two songs. Uh, but I think in a way they both are representative of how much I love my city and how, and how much, how much I care for it. And not so much that I don't want it to change, but I want it to, even though I literally say, don't change, say the same <laughs> in uh, gold rush. It's, 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 it's more that at the end of the day, I, I want the spirit of my city to continue to thrive and to remain intact. And 
throughout, you know, with the tech boom in Seattle, the spirit of the city started to started to kind of flicker a bit. And of course, during the pandemic, it's been it's been even worse. But it, it feels as things are starting to open up, people are starting to go out again. You know, I think things are starting to kind of get back to a place of not so much normalcy, but a new normal that I can personally accept, if, if, yeah. if that's even a, something I'm, I can, I'm allowed to say or do. One thing that I really appreciated about both Roman Candles and the record as a whole, once I finally heard it, and, and I, I think I expressed this to you directly once the single dropped, was I really appreciated the way some of the chaos that you're talking about, even if it was purely, you know, atmospheric, if you remained, you know, fortunate and and not directly affected by it in your within your home and within your life, some of that chaos has come into the music. I love that you came back with a noisier song. I love that the first mm-hmm. song on the record, um, which is really a phenomenal track, is actively addressing, to me, the emotional experience of living through the last two years, which is I would like to lay some framework of understanding and control over this, but I cannot. And there's some acceptance in that that I find really moving when I listen to the record. Yeah, I, well, thank you. I, 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 I write linearly, so I, I've never you know, written a chorus first and then tried to write verses that fit the chorus. I mean, it, it's probably something I should try at some point just as a writing exercise, but I've always written linearly, starting with a first verse into a chorus, into a second verse, into a bridge or whatever. So, you know, when I was writing Roman Candles, the first verse is just this kind of, you know, vomitous kind of rant about just how difficult it's been to kind of get through the days in the middle of the pandemic. And and I, I find myself kind of cratering as the verse is finishing as we get to the end of the first verse. But because I write linearly, I'll look at what I've just written and say, like, do I want it? How, how far do I want to go with this? You know, I, and I, I find myself, it almost feels like a conversation with myself where I get to having to write the chorus. And I'm like, well, I, I really got to lift it up here. I can't just take people down with me. And I also want, I want to give, I want there to be something in this song that is, that drags me out of this pit that I've dug myself into in the first verse. So coming back with, you know, but I'm learning to let go of all the things that I tried to hold too long because they all explode like Roman candles. Like, you know, trying to, I just, it's, to me, it's yeah, sometimes the way I write it, it feels like a conversation I'm having myself where if I am kind of starting to descend into the depths of despair, I'm, I'm lyrically trying to pull myself out of it in the chorus. And then that allows me to go back down again in, a, in the second verse. I feel like, because I know I'm going to get back to that chorus and pull myself up. So um, yeah, it, it, it feels like that's probably one of the reasons that these glimmers of hope cut through in some of the songs because I'm, I'm, I'm having a conversation with myself as I'm writing the song. I like the idea of the conversation with yourself because I was going to ask more specifically about what felt like a, a wonderful conversation that you had during the early part of the pandemic when you were doing songs from home and you were doing concerts from your house, connecting with people very actively, you know, in a way that I think was very significant and meaningful to a lot of fans. And, um, you know, during the darkest few weeks, certainly at the beginning of everything, how much of that experience, I mean, it, first of all, is that correct to even frame that as a conversation? Did you feel it as a two-way street between people making requests, commenting, feeding back to you? And then did any of that spirit of connection or conversation carry into the eventual writing and recording of this record, you know, however many months later? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't set out with the live from homes to to have them be such an interactive experience. Initially, 
I have to admit, I was pretty nervous about doing the first one because I've just, you know, being 46 now, you know, I didn't, we didn't grow up online. We didn't, we didn't grow up sharing mm-hmm. our every experience with the world and interacting with fans from the moment we put out our first single or whatever. It's, it's, it's been a very, you know, we, the, the overwhelming majority of my life has been lived without social media. So I'm not, I'm not very good at it, nor do I feel comfortable using it um, the same way that somebody who's 20 probably does. Um, so in those early shows, I would see that there was a comment kind of board over on the right. And I'd be like, Oh no, there's probably gonna be people in there just saying terrible things or like trolling me or whatever, because that's, <laughs> I don't know how I got that idea. Why would you tune in and watch some guy play guitar and, you know, singing songs that you like and just use that opportunity to make fun of him. But that was where my insecurities lay. Because... There, there also wasn't a lot going on, you know, so theoretically right, exactly. some people so, might be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 you know, the overwhelming majority of people were fans, of course. I mean, now that it seems, it's, that seems like a, you know, obvious now, but at the time I, I just, I wasn't sure how they were going to go. And, and what I started to notice over the course of the days and weeks that I was doing the shows is that this little community was starting to form around the shows. And I would open up the, before I'd go live, um, I would open up the window and I'd see people in the chat and they were, you know, saying things like, oh, I lost my job today. And somebody else was like, oh, I'm so sorry, Steve. You know, hopefully you'll get back on your feet. People were, it was very clear that this was becoming a little small microcosm for people to kind of, that every day this was going to be the thing that at least a lot of them were going to do. Uh, this was something to kind of, you know, uh, center at least a portion of their day around. And it was the same for me. I mean, I, you know, it was an, it wasn't an entirely altruistic gesture because I found that I really needed it myself at that time where, you know, those early days of the pandemic when we didn't know what the fuck was going on. And, uh, you know, we thought we'd just be in our homes for a couple of weeks while the virus just passed on by. And then we get back to doing everything we did. And then as that turned out to not be the case, that's where, at least for me, a lot of my anxiety settled in. And I, and I started to get really, my mental health started to crater. And doing these shows was incredibly helpful for that because it gave me something every day that I had to do, mm-hmm. you know, and okay, what am I gonna do? Okay, today's all Beatles covers, so I have to spend the day learning Beatles songs or whatever it might be. And, you know, I won't, I won't say that, you know, that sense of community necessarily made its way into the record, but what it did make me wanna do with, was, kind of mix up the way that we had been making, that we had been writing and working on music to that point, which had pretty much from the beginning of the band been, I sit in a room writing songs, I send songs to band, band becomes familiar with songs, then we go in the studio and we just figure them out. So about maybe like a month into the pandemic, I kind of came up with this uh, experiment where, you know, there's five of us in the band, and there's five days in a traditional work week. And we would create an out-of-order order where maybe Zach might go first and do a, write a piece of music on the keyboard. He would upload it to a Dropbox. The next day, maybe Jason pulls it down, puts some drums on it. And then the next day, I pull it down on Wednesday and I, add, I write lyrics and a melody or add guitar or whatever I'm going to do, and so on and so forth. And by Friday, everybody's contributed to this piece of music that may or may not turn out to be a song. And the rules that I set were you have only 24 hours to work on it. And whoever has the piece of music in their possession has complete editorial control over what they're doing. So 
If you don't like that keyboard part, you can throw it out. If you want to make the song faster, you can time stretch it. If you want to change a key, you can do that. And so we started doing this alongside the songs that I was writing at home. And it, it, be, it, it somewhat like the live from home shows, it gave a sense of schedule and purpose to the week that otherwise never exists for me as a musician when I'm at home, because when I'm at home, I'm just kind of making my own schedule, writing when I feel like writing, doing other stuff, moving off. And it, it centered at least one day of the week entirely on the band for each of the five of us, which yeah, I wasn't sure that it was going to work, but it, it, I felt that worst case scenario, we might get some you know, bits and bobs that I could pull from in my own writing. But by the time the record was reported, about a little, I think a little less than half or around half of the record ended up being songs that started wow. with that writing methodology. So, you know, of course, like anybody, I think we would probably give back whatever we, whatever pluses we got during the pandemic, not have a pandemic. But if there had to be a pandemic, and we had to be stuck in our homes, at least we were able to kind of open up some new creative avenues for ourselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you think about a track like Fox Love Through the Clear Cut, which I don't know if it came from that process that you're describing, but it's unlike anything you've done before, you know, and it's kind of exciting, you know, it, both musically and thinking about you and your career and the band as a whole, that on record number 10, there's there's more here. You know, there's a different path to go down, a different door to open and, and see what's behind it. Well, that's an interesting track for a lot of reasons, but primarily because that was a song that before the pandemic, I had come across a big box of four track tapes. And for those who are not familiar, uh, a four track is slash was a, a piece of recording equipment, a home recording device that would take a regular cassette and take the four tracks, uh, you know, there's stereo right and left on the side A and side B and run them in the same direction so you could multi-track on them. And before GarageBand and Pro Tools and Logic and stuff, this is how people like me made demos. And I used a four track for all of my demos between 96 and 2001. So I was going back through these tapes and I was dumping them all into Pro Tools so that I could do something with them later just to archive them. And I came across this instrumental piece of music that I'd recorded in 1998, I think, January of 1998. Wow. I was like, wow, that's really great. I love that bass line. The drum part's cool. And that guitar part's kind of cool. So I took those three elements and I looped eight bars of it. And I wrote Fox Club on that. Yeah. So that piece of music is this weird bridge. That song is a bridge between literally the stuff I was writing on the first record and what we're doing as a band now. And it, you know, of course, we stripped out a lot of the, we're not using any of the original tracks from the old four track cassette. But, you know, Zach replayed some stuff on keyboards. Everybody added their own elements to it. But um, I think that one reason maybe that song has been resonating with fans of the band, uh, or certainly fans who've been around for a long time, is because it, its DNA is in the very first uh, kind of version of the band. It's so interesting. And I was totally wrong. I'm saying it's new. And in fact, it's all the way back to the beginning. Um, one thing that I found interesting is that because this is record number 10 and because your career almost stretches the length of the Mariners playoff drought, sorry, I had to say it. Um, <laughs> That's a fine, fine. You, you get, you're getting asked more and more to like rank and revisit. And you're unsurprisingly very, very good at this because you're a very <laughs> thoughtful person, but also you are a fan of careers and albums and things like this. And if people haven't read it, like I thought your conversation with Stereo Gum was just great. Do you think looking back on things, um, do you generally feel like your fans are quote unquote, right 
Like, is the marketplace of your fan right about things that they embrace or things that they maybe not reject, but things that they are more lukewarm on now that you look back on, you know, the 10 records behind you? Oh, 100%. They're always right. They're always right. I mean, you know, I, I, I won't name any names, um, of course, but, you know, there are bands that I love that had careers as long or longer than ours. And I have done my best to kind of avoid the pitfalls that some of those bands have fallen into. I think the most obvious pitfall is the tempos slow down, the acoustic guitars come out, the string arrangements get bigger and more uh, ridiculous. And there becomes a distance from the, the, the writing seems to be being done from a distance. Mm. It, and I, I, I really believe that when a, a band that I love was working on their 10th or 11th record, I'm sure they thought that they were making a really great record because they were working with the material in front of them that they all were enjoying. And that's probably as I, I'm complete, com, total conjecture. Uh, they were probably believing that this material stacked up with the best stuff that they'd ever done. But I, what I, what I question is if they went back and listened to some of that stuff and then listened to the new stuff that they were working on and asked themselves the question, does this material continue the legacy of the older material that we might, that was, that was our heyday, you know, or our high watermark, mm -hmm. critically, commercially, whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's something that I'm doing with every record, but what I'm, I feel, I feel like as a fan, primarily what I want from a band or an artist that has been around as long as we have or longer, what I want in a new record is the reminder of why I love that band. And I want a new record, you know, you, of course you want to, you, you know, I, I think it's very difficult for an artist or a band to make a record 25, 30 years in that will be culturally uh, seen on par with their zeitgeist moment record. You know, so much of how we view an artist's work is in the time and place in which it's made, the culture around that record. These are things that cannot be, they cannot be replicated. So, you know, if, fill in the blank band who had made an amazing record in 1992 makes an equally great record in 2022. It's, it won't have the same cultural kind of cachet because of the time period in which the first record came out and the connection with which people have to that first record. So for me, what I'm, what I want to do with this band is I want it. I, I only want to put out records when I feel we truly have something to say. I'm very cognizant of, not drowning our fans in material. I feel that there is this trend that starts to happen later in some artist's career where they decide that what their fans want is more music. And as a fan myself, I don't necessarily want five records for my favorite band in a, in a calendar year. I want one record every five years that can be an event and something that can remind me why I love this band and make mm -hmm. me go back and listen to the old records and connect the new material with the records that I loved when I was a teenager or in my twenties, whatever. So I feel like I'm rambling a bit, but I, 
the short answer is, <laughs> yeah, the fans are always right. I mean, if I, and I feel as I feel if I'm able to turn the guns on on my own band in the last 10 years, I think that we have I think we have made a lot of great songs, but we had not made a great record. Hmm. And, you know, I'm I'm very pleased to see that the general response to Asphalt Meadows is that is it is our best record in over 10 years, which is something I would completely agree with. Even Pitchfork. Crazy, right? Crazy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, though. I mean, I, it, it's, a, and it's, a, it's as a fan myself, acclimating to the new record and remembering what it feels like to have songs that speak to each other as much as they speak to me is really nice, you know, and, and used to be the defining factor of my relationship with records. But as things have shifted, I think I've shifted with them. And I agree with you about this record. Not to harp on it, I, but I, I am curious because, as you just said, you, you, you turn the guns on yourself as well as anyone. Um, and sometimes that results in good songs. Um, but going through some of these things, like the Stereo Gum thing, like you, I, in my opinion, you are unduly harsh on Codes and Keys, a record that I will still <laughs> defend. And we can, we can do a separate podcast because I really, really love a lot of the songs on that record. My question isn't about what you don't like. My question is, if you do revisit and you're considering your body of work, you know, in, in anticipation of new work, what do you take from things that maybe didn't connect as much? Like, what do if people? Because fans can say, "Well, I don't like that, so I don't listen to it." But you are going mm -hmm. back and you are listening. What do they not understand about what you gained from that or learned from that that pays forward towards the new work? Well, I think I think the longer that you do this it becomes more and more difficult to remain connected to the aesthetic and sometimes the spirit of the work that people first fell in love with while also trying to branch out and do some new things. And that, that becomes increasingly more difficult the longer you do this. That's a problem I'm more than willing to, to take on. But what it means is that you're not going to hit every time. It's like, you know, I mean, I, I think talking about Neil Young's career is fair game at this point. You know, I mean, it's like there was a period for, of his records for me for the 80s into the early 90s that didn't really do much for me. But then he comes out with Harvest Moon. And, and Harvest Moon, for me at least, is, is, a, is a perfect distillation of the things that I love about Neil Young while also being written and sung from the perspective of Neil Young at that age. And so in a career as long as Neil Young's or a career that is continuing as long as mine and ours, there might be some longer periods between the last record that you truly loved and the harvest moon, but the harvest moon is coming. And I think the longer a career, the more missteps that you are going to have in the eyes of the fans. And that's just something that one has to accept. And you have to, you have to understand that fans feel that way because they care, because they love your band, because they love music. That's, you know, if my favorite band makes a record that I don't like, it it's like, it's almost personally offensive to me, but that's because I love that band so much. And I want, I, I want everything they do to be great. And the reality is that that's simply not possible. But as a fan of, 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 of you and your songwriting, but also a fan of the length and breadth of careers, which is maybe another way of saying I'm also old now. I really <laughs> love, I love when a f there's more to be found. You keep digging the same furrow and there's more there. And so I think about 
a song like Title and Registration, which is now almost 20 years old, and a song like uh, Weed Like Waves, which is just a few weeks uh, mm-hmm. old in terms of our consciousness. And you know, both are centered around exper- emotional experiences around automobiles. Only one features Prefab Sprout, which I had to mention on the podcast because that, <laughs> yeah. that meant a lot to me. I don't know if that was just a, I don't know how many of us received that transmission, but I did. <laughs> but the emotion of the new song feels incredibly relevant to you and your life and your experience now and your perspective. You know, there's no reason to compare those songs necessarily other than uh, I'm reaching for an auto metaphor and you wrote both of them. But it does feel like a furrow is continuing to be worked and there's more there and there's a different perspective on it now. And I think that's sort of the beauty of a longer career and following it. Yeah, I I feel that way. And I I appreciate you saying that because that's a song on the record that I'm incredibly proud of. And I, I had written an earlier version of it you know, the first couple lines I was really fond of, like, we like waves, you know, the Canadian planes were an ocean wide flowing to the sky. I had this whole thing and this image in my mind that I originally was thinking about uh, my friend Torque. And I had written this, the rest of the song was kind of a, a more a, a love song about, you know, I love Torque, but not specifically about a Torque. Um, and I found, I, I and this I, is I Torque from myself, Stars, right? I don't know many other Torques. Stars, yeah. Not, Torque, we yeah, lo- we lost Campbell, Peter yeah. Torque a few years ago, so I know this is right. Yeah, no, this is uh, this is uh, this is uh, Torquil Campbell, and and we, you know we had you know a handful of years ago we had we had kind of had been on this you know driving around in Canada, and I was and I was just like you know we were literally listening to Prefab Sprout, and I ended up kind of backtracking on that song and thinking like I really need to write a song about a male friendship that has been, that we have been friends for over 20 years, Torque and I. And I felt that that was a more relevant thing to write about at 45 than to write another lost love song, which, you know, I've got plenty of those and probably will have a lot, you know, a lot moving forward as I, as is my way. But, um, but I just, I, I felt this like very strong urge to kind of backtrack and write a song about, about where I was in my life with a, a friend of mine and talking about, you know, and, and, you know, the, you know, the kind of person that we could have easily been doing this similar road trip in our twenties and now we're in our forties. Um, and so, you know, putting the song into the world, I was like, I don't know who this is going to resonate with other than Andy Greenwald. Yeah, exactly. Um, Thank but, you. <laughs> but, but it felt like, but it felt like a much more honest thing to write about and a much more honest voice to use than to kind of, try to continue in a lineage of brokenhearted love songs, which I have been, you know, known for uh, over the years. And it's a song that I'm incredibly proud of because I feel like my instincts were correct to begin with and that I should be writing about who I am now and the experience I'm having versus trying to maintain a specific narrative lineage that I've kind of written a number of times already. But also finding the vein of the same rich emotional vein. I mean, the, the song communicates its emotions very clearly, as clearly as songs you'd written about, as songs you hadn't written specifically for me. Let's just say that, you know, <laughs> as, as as the person in his mid-40s who likes Prefab Sprout, Stars, and Death Cab for Cutie, like, I appreciate <laughs> the personal shout-out. But, you know, but the emotions are still present, and they're more, it seems like they are relevant to you today, you know, in a different way, which is, I think is part of the power of it. Very much so. And I think my best songs are the ones that while I'm writing them, I can, I can visualize every detail in the room where whatever series of events I'm writing about are occurring. They just seem very vivid and I'm not reaching for them. And 
you know, there are certainly songs in our catalog that I, I felt I was reaching for that turned out to be songs that resonate uh, deeply with people. But I think with this record in particular, there's not a single song on this record that isn't incredibly uh, vibrant in my mind. When I, and or that in writing the song, I wasn't reaching for anything. Everything was just right at right at you know right at my grasp, and I could see every song as if I'm watching a movie. That's thrilling, and it comes across. And I, I, you've been very generous with your time as always. I'm thrilled about the album. The band is on tour now, and will continue to be on tour for the next few weeks and months, and maybe even to the next year. But I do have to bring it back to baseball briefly before I let you go. Of so yeah, we're at the cusp of the playoffs. Um, mm-hmm. the J-Rod experience is in full effect potentially for the next 12 years, which congratulations on that. That is great. But I have to ask you, okay, so would this is a quick game of would you rather. Now, okay. I, I have a feeling the answer is going to be clear for all of them so we can buzz through it pretty quickly, but I, maybe I'm wrong. So, okay. for example, would you rather have a Mariners World Series championship or Death Cab play Saturday Night Live again? Oh, uh, Mariners World Championship is not even a... Right. Well, that's why we, okay, we started with that. Okay. Would you rather have a Mariners World Championship or a number one record on the Billboard charts? Mariners World Championship. We already have a number one record. (laughs) I loved it. See, got to give you a little room to flex. Um, (laughs) Would you rather have a uh, Mariners World Championship or a number one song? Hot 100. That I don't think you've done. Mariners World Championship. You haven't given me anything yet that I'd want more yet. Uh, okay. I assume the answer for the other ones on this list, platinum plaque, Grammy, forget about it. You want, you want the world championship. Yeah. You know, Andy, (laughs) my entire career after 1998 has been complete gravy. (laughs) So, and I often talk about the Seattle Mariners at friends and I say things like, look, I have lived a charmed life. I have a wonderful I, w- I had a wonderful upbringing with a wonderful family. I have wonderful friends. Uh, I'm living the rare existence where I said at 13, I wanted to play music for a living and I'm doing it at 46. And throughout my entire life, from the, at least from the time I was six on, I have watched a pretty terrible baseball team. And I've said to people that, you know, I, I, I live a charmed life. And the Seattle Mariners are my cross to bear. Mm-hmm. They, they are, you know, at the end, and as it is with sports, they mean absolutely nothing and everything at the same time. You know, you and I, as what I would consider fairly, fairly intelligent, uh, intellectual, uh, you probably better educated than I, but still educated, uh, middle-aged men, um, we are the exact type of people who should be able to look at sports and, and, and say that they're stupid and that no one should uh, care about them because they really don't, they don't, they, there are so many other things in the world going on that are more important. And uh, people who spend all of their time caring about a baseball team are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've spent a lot of my life caring about a baseball team. Yeah. The more that I care about things that I that have much more of an effect on the world. I think that's beautifully said. I completely agree. We should be able to watch this stuff clear-eyed, not through a plant. Um, I, I didn't get <laughs> I, I, I didn't get to pitch you my last one, which involved some, and I don't wish this into the world like the secret, but envisioning some future 
mining disaster, which causes celebrities to take to TikTok to do a acapella version of I Will Follow You Into the Dark to support the trap miners. Like if that would be oh. a viral moment that you would be into more than a world championship. But I, 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 my guess is no. Kind of like an imagine moment, kind of like if you will. Yeah. Is, is, uh, is, uh, is leading the I, charge on that. I keep picturing her, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know why you would. Um, yeah, you know that that's a pretty that's a pretty close that's a pretty close one. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I you know I, I've as 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 whether it's you hiding behind the potted plant or uh, whatever my experience will be if and when the Mariners ever make it to a World Series. Uh, I guess that that'll TBD. But I I do think I have I I am more inclined to think that you know, in the year, you know, 2070 or something like that, you know, my, my now middle-aged nephews, uh, will be, or, you know, will be being interviewed. They'll be the ones being interviewed on, you know, after the Mariners win a world series, talking about their uncle Gibbs and how he would have loved to have seen this, <laughs> you know, if he, you know, he, his whole life, he was waiting for this. And we were just really thinking about him now, wherever he might be. You know, he would have yeah. loved to have seen this. <laughs> Too bad what that would happen to him in that mining accident. That's... Yeah, with you know that that walk off home run by Julio Rodriguez the third, you know, was just an incredible iconic moment. You know, uh, Look, you know, if, and uh, he would have loved to have seen that. If Tom Brady can play to forty five now, Julio Rodriguez could be playing in twenty seventy and leading the team to a, you know, multiple championships. Right? Like this is all possible with genetics and science. Six, he will be sixty nine years old. Um, he seems very fit. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, you never know. We, we don't know what kind of, we, we don't know what kind of advancements are coming in uh, yeah. athletic medical technology. Plus when they get rid of the shift, people's careers will immediately be extended. And yeah, absolutely. I hear Ryan Howard's coming back in shift. Too soon. Still, still hurts. Still hurts. <laughs> um, well, I wish you nothing but the best as always with this tour, with this record and with the playoffs up to the moment when you face the Phillies at some point, in which case, friendship is over but up to that moment yeah. i support you wholeheartedly thank you yeah i have i actually was texting with torque just yesterday because it looks like at least as, as of the taping of this podcast that the mariners will be playing the blue jays uh torque yeah. campbell is of course canadian well he's american actually but uh he has dual citizenship so now now i guess he's canadian and he we have we have made a pact that we will not speak uh from the moment of the first pitch until 24 hours after the last game. So our, our friendship is on, is on pause. That's beautiful. Uh, for, for this, because, you know, I don't think either of us could handle the shit talking because we don't know how to do it and we don't know how to react to it. You know, it's like, you, you know, feel you nervous. Like, yeah. Yeah. If you had a friend, if you were a Yankees fan, your friend was a Red Sox fan, you've probably been going back and forth for years because there's been high stakes. and like, ah, whatever, we'll get him next time. Blah, 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 blah. This seems like a once in a lifetime thing for both of us. So we, uh, we, we're not going to risk our friendship over some shit talking over the, like a Vlad or Julio home run. The worst and most confusing thing of what was otherwise an amazing experience, which was when the Eagles beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, is we didn't know what to do and we had nothing to say even to the Boston fans. Because the Boston fans were like, well, we have many more. And, and, and well, we just didn't know what, how to contain. You guys knew what to do. What to do was to eat horse shit, um, you know, in Philadelphia, if I recall correctly. That, and, you know, it was that, that was something that, your people did, I believe. <laughs> but that was just Tuesday. That had nothing to do with the results of the <laughs> football contest. Um, all right. What a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, you're always welcome on this podcast. And at some point, we have to do a, a running podcast. We've already 
narrowed the field by talking about baseball. And so then next time we could just talk about middle-aged men running and end this podcast. Those are the two things I, I love the most. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'll love it. So, so. That's all I want to talk about. So, you, yeah, know, we can, you know, I guess if we have to talk about music, if I have to put a record out or something, whatever, I'll, I'll figure something out. It's starting to feel like maybe that's just a phone call, but I look forward to it regardless. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Good to see you, buddy. Take care. Good to see you, too.